Well, I think we're on time. We're going to start. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to this evening. And uh, thank you for taking time out of the evening to come and join. Um, if anyone has not met John Sharkey before, which I cannot believe there's people out there that have not met John Sharkey, I'd like to introduce John Sharkey to you. Uh, John is a, a clinical anatomist. Is that right, John? Oh, I've, I have muted him as well. <laughs> Sorry, that would be a very one-sided conversation this evening. I'm trying to stay quiet so I don't shift the camera. To I've, I've never known you stay quiet. As long as I've known you, I've never, there's never the thing I would see. But uh, John is a clinical anatomist. I've known John for, uh, I don't know how many years. It's been um, a long time that we've been... Um, basically uh, known each other from the aerobic days, uh, from when John was competing in his very, very short pants uh, and doing amazing high kicks. I've seen him develop. Um, he's become a huge figure now in the biomechanical and the fascia industry, which I mean, he's going to be talking about. John lives in Dublin uh, with his gorgeous wife, Fidemo, who I know is with us, and joins me this morning for bar, uh, as well as Jill, of course. Hi, Jill. I see Jill there. Um, and they run a company called MTC. And I'm going to ask John to explain that. But this, this evening's idea is really to, obviously, as we've all evolved and gone through all the changes we've gone through, and we've learned a lot, is the questions I'm going to ask John, really starting off with, is really knowing what you know now, going back to those aerobic days, those days of jumping around and going crazy, basically, leg warmers and everything, what would you say to yourself back then? How, how could you go back to yourself and say what you know now? How could you, without scaring yourself back then, <laughs> how could you go and tell yourself information? What would the answer be to that? Well, first of all, before we jump straight in, just first of all to say, look, thanks to everybody for your support. It's lovely to see you all here. And with so many people, um, no doubt there are going to be individuals who either know somebody on the front line or they may know somebody who's, you know, who has unfortunately passed because of this coronavirus. And so uh, I don't think there, there is anybody that this hasn't touched. So myself and Michael are thrilled that you've joined us this evening. And what we try to do as well is we try to just be a little bit lighthearted. Isn't that right, Michael? I mean, to lift our spirits. And the one thing we need to do is get away from the TV, get away from BBC and Sky News and RTE, whatever you're watching, uh, because too much of it can just get in on you, you know, so... But um, I'll start, by the way, by saying that I, my, I, my first course, of course, in Pilates was with you. My first class was with you um, in the Pineapple Studios in London. So what year would that have been? Well, I don't usually go in single years. These days, I just go in decades. I say that was the 80s, that was the 90s, and that was the, the zeros. Um, yeah. 1981 is when I opened my, the studio in, in Pineapple Dance Studios. Right, yeah. And I think it could have been around the 85 something yeah. like that that I anyway so it's a long long time ago so what's the here's the first thing I would do I would write a letter to myself and say make sure you look out for a company called Microsoft <laughs> and take every penny that you have and spend it on that company you know wouldn't that be a cool thing to be able to do but here's the bottom line the bottom line is I did my first degree started my first degree in 1979. My first degree was in exercise physiology and we had a, a module on anatomy. So we did cadaveric um, studies dissection and of course I was hooked from, from there. But the, the, the main point I would make, and I, I, I generally speaking usually start presentations out this way. I let people know that my, I brought my daughter Katie 
uh, to be assessed when she was starting school because we just for now and myself thought that she needed you know to be assessed because uh, we figured that she might need a little bit of help and um, it turns out that she's dyspraxic but the girls who were doing the assessment and um, they said to me when they were speaking to me now by the way you know that you're also dyspraxic and I said no I, I didn't know that I had no and they said oh yes absolutely you are dyspraxic and we got into a conversation as to why did I fall into this into this category and you know what criteria had I met and so for me over the years I've had to um, I've had to take the language of physiology and anatomy and I've had to try to dissect it I've had to literally break it down it's part of my personality because there were other people in the class and it seemed to me that everybody uh, had no problem with taking in the information and digesting it and assimilating it and I actually felt a bit stupid and I was thinking to myself like what am I doing? Have I bitten off more than I can chew? And why am I so stupid? That's the God's honest truth. I felt stupid. And what I ended up doing was, you can see behind me here, I have a, an easel. In those days, we didn't have an easel. Uh, we didn't, there was no invention of whiteboards. What we did have was blackboards and chalk. And so what I did was I bought a blackboard and chalk and I brought it home to my apartment. And I used to draw on the blackboard and I used to pretend I had people in the room. And I'd pretend I was teaching. So I'd say, sorry, what's that? Yes, this is the trachea. Well, the trachea is C-shaped rings of cartilages because we need to make sure that uh, the back of it is open for the esophagus. And pardon, what's that? Well, of course, I'd be asking questions. If anybody seen me, they'd have thought I was completely and utterly nutty talking to nobody. But I found this way of learning really helped me that if I, my brain, I think, thought that if I knew it well enough to teach it, well, it was no problem. I really, I really knew it well. And so, um, and this is what I started to do. And so when you say to me, as a, you know, if I was to write a letter to a young anatomist, what would I say? Now, there's so many things I would say. But one of the things I guess I would say is concentrate on the language and try to make sure you understand what the words mean. And in fact, I'm going to say to everybody who's joining us this evening, um, You've got plenty of time in your hands now. I usually say to people, when you find yourself in airports and you've got free internet, um, you know, spend 15 minutes taking words that you use in everyday parlay and investigate them. Look at the etymology of these words. Look at the root meaning. Are they Arabic? Are they French? Um, are they old, old English? And, and, you know, what's the origin of those words? So, for instance, the word to contract, that means to shrink. And contract might work in, in, in this direction, my massive biceps. Uh, it might work in this direction, but what about when we do this? Because that's also a eccentric contraction. A contraction. So, um, and of course, muscles, muscularis means little mice. So a lot of these words, acetabulum for your hip joint means vinegar bowl. Uh, we have a hippocampus in the brain, which means sea monster or seahorse. And these words don't actually help us to understand what the physiology or the metabolism behind these structures are. It's, it's, it's just historical that they were ordinary people putting names on these tissues. So if you, if you look at the movement, I don't know if you can see that very well, as I do that, you can see that kind of movement on my skin. And the Greeks taught that if you had a, a bed sheet on the ground and a mouse run under it, that that's the kind of shape that it would make. So they called them little mice, muscularis. So it's probably the first thing, Michael, that I would tell myself is to pay attention to the language and try to understand what the words actually mean. Because some of the 
um, earliest anatomists and philosophers, I think they chose their, their words carefully. And then there were other words that they, they didn't choose very well. I always say when you know when you <laughs> said to me, you know, just the, the language because people always get intimidated a lot by anatomy, especially new teachers coming to learn Pilates. They just feel overwhelmed by this whole different language that literally language they have to learn. And I remember you saying, Michael, it's really simple. There's one muscle in the body, just one muscle. And then the other thing is to say, how could people not love this language? It's so sexy. I mean, the way you say abdominus or rexus abdominus and you just wrap your words around it i mean you always have made it so much fun and and fun to want to learn but of course it does keep changing i mean everything we now know has kind of changed how what we thought uh, when it comes to what what um, we now know about the fashion definitely where we look at the movement now i mean how many years did we lay on a back pulling a leg towards us trying to make the hamstring longer so those things must continually keep you on a a journey as such. There's no doubt about that. But I, I have to say also, by the way, if we stop, and when you mentioned the, the one muscle, I can remember doing a, a presentation that I had, um, which you, you may remember was the never ending story. And that was one that was really popular in Blackpool and other places. And the idea behind that, there was a movie out at the time, I think it was called the never ending story. And so I, it was popular. I used the, the term. Some people who are joining us this evening may have come to that at some stage in Blackpool, I can't remember. But um, the idea, of course, was, was to try to help explain that there was no real beginning or ending in the human body because, you know, we, as embryos, as a fetus and into embryo, we grow ourselves. And so therefore, it's not like, um, you know, you end up having to Velcro on a part of your body at some stage or that you have to go and have some medical um, operation to be able to have a part, you know, slipped into the to the body somewhere. You grow yourself from from you know from beginning to end, and and from that viewpoint, that was really the premise. I may not have said it as eloquently as I do today because I'm mixing, you know, with colleagues like Joanne Avison, who has just a wonderful grasp of the English language, and I think helps me a lot in terms of you know actually we work well together, we bounce off each other a lot, um, and others who um, have really helped to broaden out that language. But just on the comment that you made, when I was a youngster, and I'm talking about now being very, very young, six years of age, seven and so on, myself and my brother used to play a game. The game was, we'd go down to a local beach close to our house, and we would run from one end of the beach to the other and then back again. It was quite a long beach. Now, we did not know in those days that that would become known as jogging. There was no such thing as jogging, and there was no such thing as going for a run. It just wasn't invented. Jim Fix. Uh, really brought running to the fore and unfortunately he died in, in New York City in 1984 um, and he, he made running popular if you want to look up Jim Fix but this was a game for us and the game and the objective was just to simply finish in other words get run over the sand dunes and then get back to where we we started and in those days I was reading about somebody called Bernard no D at the end of it Bernard McFadden now, when I ask people on this side of the world in particular, or even in the, the Americas, who Bernard McFadden is, most people don't know him. They haven't heard of him. And yet Bernard McFadden is the father of health-related fitness. And uh, he was around um, a little bit earlier than, than Joseph Pilates, but I'm absolutely certain that he had an impact on Joseph Pilates, as did others have an impact on Joseph Pilates. But um, 
he was working, he was promoting fitness and he was also promoting some bodywork therapy. He was combining the two. And as a youngster, a bit of a geek, I was so impressed with this. I was really, really blown away by this. Um, and so I was reading his publications and he had a, a guy who was his right-hand man. And that was a, a man called Stanley Leaf. And Stanley Leaf was a naturopath. And Stanley Leaf came back to America, having studied with, with Bernard McFadden, came back to the UK, and he set up a place called Champneys in the UK. Now, when I say he set up, believe it or not, he was treating somebody with low back pain, and that person left him Champneys in his will, just yeah. to say thank you for, so be nice to your, be nice to your uh, clients and to your patients. You never know what they might do. No, it's amazing because I then, when I was doing my, my, my degree, I went to what's called a car boot sale or a garage sale, and a doctor up in, in upstate New York was, uh, was doing this, and he was selling, here was an encyclopedia by Bernard McFadden. And I said it to him, how much do you want for this? He said, oh, give me five bucks. And I said, no, no, well, this is an encyclopedia by Bernard McFadden. And he said, no, I know what it is. He said, but just give me five bucks. And I, was, I was thinking, no, you can't just sell it to me for five bucks. That encyclopedia is now in the library at National Training Center, NTC. And then... Um, the, so he was working, as I say, with Stanley Leaf. And in 1984, I began working with my friend and colleague, Dr. Leon Chaitow. And Dr. Chaitow, um, it transpires uh, that Stanley Leaf was Dr. Chaitow's uncle. And I, I had no idea of this. I had no idea of this relationship. And so it's, it's just an amazing set of circumstances that led me then to meet Dr. Chaito, and then the, and the two of us ending up working together and developing what we call European neuromuscular therapy. It's a, it's a peculiar thing. So um, what was your question? <laughs> well, I was saying it was interesting you brought that up because I was told at you know, that time when Joseph Pilates was evolving his method in, uh, after the First World War and back in New York, yeah. five people in New York that were doing very similar things to Joseph Pilates. Yeah. Um, you know, that were, it was a whole time when with people, not just with anatomy, but dance and movement and strength training, there was, there was a lot of uh, evolving um, of different methods. We don't know why Joseph Blood is, was the one that got well known as such in, in such a way, but we think it's maybe because it was attached to the dance world, maybe it carried through that, we don't know, but it was a very interesting time. Yeah. Me, um, well, what I wanted to finish there was to say that there were many people, I believe, who were moving in ways that we are now beginning to realize that that's actually the way to move. Um, the, the kind of static poses, they can be useful depending uh, on what it is you wish to achieve. But for the most part, it's about, it's about movement. And in fact, when you look at those individuals who have Parkinson's disease or some other motor neuron disease, what they can't do is this, mm. which is stillness. And stillness is such a beautiful utility but we don't want to be still for too long we never want to be still because then we become stagnant uh, but it, so life is really about motion and movement and we we seldom have a, a need to do something like you know like this or this one remember this one yes pulling the arm you know what was that about or you know we, we we'd spend so many minutes in an aerobics class warming up only to stop and then do you know yeah, stretch. Hamstring stretch. I was like, why? You know, what, why, and why the hamstring? You know, why, why was it the hamstring? So I think a lot, we, I think we've moved on a lot um, since those days. You started NTC and your first training courses, you said were about 1985. Mm. Right? Yeah, well, and tell us about 
the work that you're doing now with, uh, with the MTC. What is, what is the MTC if nobody was to, to know right now? Well, really, the reason I established National Training Centre was that I was going to presentations and um, having come back with my, you know, with my degree under my belt and not really feeling that I was a person that should be up front and, and you know, uh, presenting. But I was going to presentations and listening to people and there were a number of issues that arose. One is that people would make claims and I was saying, well, I wonder where they're getting, where they're getting that fact from because I haven't seen any evidence uh, you know, to support that. Now, I know that there are people, I was in Australia uh, the year before last and somebody wrote, wrote back to me basically saying, you know, we don't need science to tell us you know, that what we're doing is correct. And I, I, you know, I really sympathize and understand when somebody says that to me. In other words, people see in clinical practice, they see a result. And then they say, well, you know, that's the result. But you see, the, the issue is that as an educator, I have to make sure that any standards or guidelines that I give to uh, graduates are ones that protect them because they don't want to be brought to court and they can't stand, you know, stand over what they've been taught in court. You have to have some science or you have to have some semblance of, um, you know, a good rationale to support whether that's anatomy or physiology to support what it is that you're doing. But these people were just making claims and saying things that just, you know, for me didn't make sense. And I thought, so no, that's not right. Somebody needs to put some kind of opposition to that. And also somebody needs to get up and, and kind of uh, put, make it clear. So, um, I mean, in, in the old days, I hate saying this because I, I love the YMCA, but in the old days, for instance, the YMCA, I remember very, in the initial stages, um, they did eventually ask me to teach. But I can remember when they asked me to teach, and I, I said to them, like, why have you not asked me to teach up to this point? And they said, oh, because you don't agree with static stretching and it's one of our guidelines. And I went, well, that's not a reason for not asking me. You know, we can, we can agree to differ. Um, but they really were stuck on this. There was this kind of three-minute warm-up, and then we all had to stop, and we had to pick three muscles, three, you know, and we had to statically stretch them. And nowadays, I think that's, that's very much it. Well, it's still prevalent, but uh, for the most part, it's a, it's a thing of the past. I think we've we've moved on uh, somewhat. So I, that, that, that's what I really, what happened. I, I, it just kind of led me to setting up a college um, where I wanted people to be able to come um, and they'd have all the, you know, the utilities, all the facilities that they needed um, away from distractions where they could train. And so that's what's happened. And it's, it's, it's grown into something quite large, really, on me, a national basis. So. Let me ask you about, I know you run dissection courses up in Edinburgh and other places. Sure. I mean, it's always fascinated me. You know, it's one thing having a skeleton stood behind you right there behind you to learn and watching, looking at books and looking at. Tell me about the dissection courses. What is the goal? Is it about learning? Is it about clarification? Is it about the variety that you see? Because I know when we saw the Body Worlds exhibition in China, I was just amazed at how different everything was. How would you put joining a dissection course as part of a learning program? Okay, and you, sorry, you went to, what did you go to, the uh, Von Hagen's Plastinarium in China, was it? It was just outside Shanghai. It was the, the museum they've built uh, where they've got the animals as well as the humans. Which right, are, okay, yeah. I mean, it may not have been, it, it could have been, um, there are three different companies now who are doing these plastinations. It all started with Gunther Von Hagen's and then um, Professor Hong Jung Sui as well, who I worked with for a number of years. Uh, he also does that. Um, and now I have some I have some specimens behind me here, and I have them covered because I just didn't want to have them uncovered and for people to, you know, just come in from the waiting room to see them. So if there's anybody who doesn't want to see them, um, then basically for a couple of minutes while I'm talking, you can certainly uh, turn off your camera. But if you don't mind seeing 
um, these these uh, plastinations, but then I'll show them now if that's okay. So is that okay? If just if anybody who doesn't want to see them, you can you can turn off the camera as an example. But so for instance, this is one I did um, several years back, and this would be a, a typical this would be a typical plastination model. So and in this case, if you can you can see that we can see the musculature. So we can see the likes of trape trapezius and we can see the, see the spleni muscles here, spleneus capitis and surfaces. You know, you can see a cut end of sternocleidomastoid. And then we get to see some of the muscles like here we got the, the, the well, this is the, the inferior auricle nerve and the, you've got the facial nerve there. And this is what, um, this is what surgeons are really interested in. And so I run a number of different courses some courses are specific to surgeons. And so they, they need to know these things. I can remember, this is the parotid gland, but I just I see it there now. So there's the parotid gland. This is the oracle, the pina, the ear, um, just for reference. And so I can remember this, um, this surgeon coming into me on a Thursday. And he said to me, John, would you have a, a, a head and neck that I could work on? And I said, yeah, not a problem at all. We can organize that. And I went in with him and I said, and what are you going to be doing? And he had an operation on the Monday. And I said, okay, so we, we took out the cadaver and set ourselves up. And I said, okay, so you, you, you go ahead doing what you need to do. And at one stage I had to stop him and say, now, are you, are you conscious of what you've just done there? And he said, in what way? I said, what have I done? I said, well, you've just severed a nerve. And he said, no, I didn't realize I've done that. I said, okay, so that's fantastic because he did it on Thursday, but he certainly didn't do it on Monday morning when he was carrying out the actual operation on a real living, you know, breathing human being. And unfortunately, the art of dissection is dying. Many, many universities now no longer have dissection. They have, you know, tables and they have virtual reality, etc. And um, some people think it's smelly and it's too costly, all of these different things. And of course, uh, we even have it here in Ireland uh, with a number of the universities. They find it very difficult to um, receive donations. People just aren't donating anymore for whatever reason. And for me, there is no substitute for, uh, for dissection and for the uh, opportunity to be able to, uh, particularly when they're unfixed. I mean, there, there's, there's, there's benefits with fixed and unfixed, but um, I specialize in, in fresh from frozen or teal, which is a soft fix a dissection. So this is useful. This type of anatomical model can be can be quite useful to to describe, you know, some of the more gross features of anatomy and to show where nerves are and where blood vessels are. Um, however, it's it's also um, quite a false anatomy because um, somebody. I mean, to be honest with you, um, where the nerves are in this model may not be necessarily where you find the nerves are in a, a living individual. And so you have to be able to use particular techniques uh, to ensure that you're in the right place and that you don't make an incision and suddenly somebody's face drops and you know, you're not gonna recover that. Mm -hmm. So you have to make sure that you're taking time and you understand the anatomical landmarks and that you understand the variations on the anatomy. Um, we were always interested in fascia 
in, in clinical anatomy. People say, oh, fascia was the Cinderella tissue. And to a point, I mean, Dr. Dr. Robert Schleip uses that term. It's a very nice term. Um, I sometimes steal it myself and use it. But if I'm being honest, we have to really put that into context because fascia, uh, to an extent, was a Cinderella tissue in terms of movement, in understanding its role in human movement, in understanding its role in not just motion, but emotion. You know, we, we didn't know that fascia could have a role to play in emotion and emotive states. We didn't know that fascia is actually speaking to those parts of the cerebral cortex, uh, uh, sharing those conversations with the parts of the brain that are involved in emotion. So this is, this is very, very new. Um, now we also have evidence to say that fascia is uh, the, the most replete tissue in the body concerning uh, sensory free nerve endings. And by the way, I'm not going to, free nerve I'm saying tonight, but to be honest with you, there, there are some research uh, to, in, in relation to free nerve endings. And in fact, there's a new cell been discovered. And so maybe free nerve endings are not free nerve endings as we thought, but that they're actually communicating with each other in, in new ways. So we're always finding new things out. And I suppose the main point about that is that sometimes it changes the way in which we do something, but I think in terms of body, in terms of uh, movement therapies, like Pilates as an example, like uh, Feldenkrais, Moshe Feldenkrais and others, I think what it's doing in, in many of those cases is it's actually supporting what they've always said. And it's actually giving them a voice and a language and a set of explanations where in the medical profession, it might be changing the way we do a lot of things, but actually in what you might refer to as the complementary therapies, it's actually simply supporting and providing the evidence that what they were saying all along was actually correct. Absolutely. It's, it's, I mean, for us, it's really exciting because again, it, it is giving us confidence in believing that, you know, validating the method in so many ways and validating some of the movements we were doing. And obviously we're dealing with a lot of diverse uh, challenges with different postures today and how we're living our life and how that's changed. But it is a, a way I think of, how we used to do in those aerobic days when we used to think about the bicep curls and the squats and the quadriceps and isolating the muscle groups as we used to do. We've gone past that point. Now we're looking at the whole body moving as a unit. Hopefully. Where Hopefully. fascial chains, it kind of makes sense when we start looking at limited. How is somebody having a hard time with a movement? It kind of, you kind of have another avenue where you can direct your thought rather than just go to you know, the muscles as it, as it were. Yeah, well, to be honest with you, this is a difficult, this is also a difficult uh, conversation in terms of language and vocabulary. I mean, my, my uh, uh, colleague in the States, Tom Myers, um, Tom and myself uh, had the, the privilege of working together in the early days with Leon and, you know, Tom was sharing many of the ideas about what became known as anatomy trains. And the truth of the matter is, anatomy trains for me is a linear model and there, there, there's no, you know, there's nothing linear in the human body and um, everything spirals and rotates. So a linear model doesn't work. It's a, the body is a non-linear system. And therefore, but having said that, people then think, oh, John, John Sharkey then, you know, doesn't, you know, doesn't agree with any aspect of anatomy trains. No, no, there's value in anatomy trains. And in fact, as, um, uh, and I know Joanne agrees with this, Joanne Avis agrees with this, that Tom deserves a huge round of applause in terms of what he has done to move fascia into a into a a, a new position where at least people begin to uh, 
start to get a better grasp on this idea of continuity where that wasn't really seen before. So the fact that it's a, it's a, you know, it's really a linear uh, model where the body is nonlinear, that in many ways is, is not the big deal. It is a big deal, depending on where you are. But uh, that doesn't mean to say that I don't love the notion of anatomy trains. I think it's, it's fantastic. And the, for instance, using terms like uh, chains and links. Well, if you have a chain and one link breaks, it makes your chain completely useless. So therefore, the human body is not based upon chains and links, because if one link within the body, a gastrocnemius or a hamstring, rips or tears or breaks, the body adapts. So it's a different system to chains and links. or to. But this is more a language of convenience. This is a language which helps to at least explain to people that this is connected to, to this you know, and that they're, because I get that all the time with patients over the years where they say to me, I'll give you a funny story, another funny story in a moment, but they'll say things like, oh, but surely that's, that's got nothing to do with my wrist pain because that's all the way up here. They, they can't see that connection. Um, in 2019, myself and Dr. Carla Stecco, uh, Dr. Stecco's from Italy. She's in a university there called Padua University and some other individuals as well made a team. And uh, I was invited by the International Federation of Associations of Anatomists, the IFAA. So what you have in each country is you have an association of anatomists. And then each of the, so, so it's Canada, America, New Zealand, Australia, so on, um, and the UK Anatomical Society, and, um, and also the British Association of Clinical Anatomists. And then you have an umbrella organization, which is the association that all the associations feed into. So this is the IFAA. And just before Christmas, I received an invitation uh, to put forward a, a symposium on fascia. And I have to tell you, I was absolutely blown away. I was thinking, why, you know, why am I being asked to do this? And where is this sudden interest in fascia coming from? Um, so we put, we put together the symposium. We had to present, we had to submit it. There was no guarantee that the committee was going to accept it, but it got accepted. And we went and we went, it was in London, held in London. And 1,400 people, this was just um, absolutely fantastic. Largest event that I've ever presented at. And um, what amazed me, now I get this on a, on a regular basis with small groups, but when you've got this intensity, so that when you're outside of your presentation, you have people coming at you from all angles and wanting to speak to you, which is pretty cool. Um, but what I found was surgeons were saying things to me like, so John, if I'm doing a retroperitoneal approach to the kidneys, and um, let's say the patient is complaining of shoulder pain, you know, a month after the operation, you're telling me there's a relationship. I'm, I'm there thinking to myself, my God, there's work to be done. <laughs> there's work to be done if, you know, if that basic concept of connection and connectivity is not understood that the surgeon, and these are brilliant individuals, by the way, but they believe that operating here is not going to affect here and of course from an embryological viewpoint there are specific there's hierarchy in the human body which i don't know if we'll get to go into that tonight but but there, there is hierarchy in the human body and so there are areas so for instance when you're if you're doing a retroperitoneal approach to the kidneys there are ways you can do it which will um at least reduce uh, certain outcomes there's no way of avoiding them it's um we say minimally invasive surgery but that's a little bit like saying 
Germany minimally invaded Poland. It, it's, it doesn't make sense. They're going to have issues. But what you can do is if you understand the fascia, if you understand its morphology and its embryological anatomy, then you can follow what we call bloodless planes to get to where you need to get to and cause as little disruption as possible. And then to be able to return uh, everything, you know, in as neat and tidy and less invasive a way as, as possible. But one way or the other, the internal milieu of the human body is an inner cosmos. And I know lots of other people use that um, analogy as well. So there's an inner cosmos and there's an outer cosmos. So in the inner cosmos here, there are no spaces. So there's no space in the human body. So if you make an incision, if you were to put a camera in like an endoscope, like Dr. Jean-Claude Gumberto does, it would just bump into tissue. What Jean-Claude has to do is Jean-Claude has to make an incision and then pull, so create tensional force so that he can create space so that the camera can go inside. But there are no spaces in the human body, it's a vacuum. And so your body has to follow the same laws as the outer cosmos. And that's, a, that's another area now that I've been a number of years uh, delving into, um, which would be physics generally, but quantum mechanics in particular. Uh, it sounds like a lot. Sometimes it puts people off. They go, oh my God, I don't want to be a, uh, you know, involved in quantum mechanics. But my job, I suppose, is to understand that and then to try to explain it in a way. And I said this to you on more than one occasion, Michael. I think we both agree on this. You never dumb things down, but you try to use a language that uh, you know, people can, can grasp and come to terms with because there's nothing worse than somebody being made to feel stupid. And that's what I started out with in this conversation, wasn't it? There's nothing worse than being made to feel stupid that you can't understand. We can all understand something. It's up to the educator. It's up to the person who's leading to find, to find a way, as Albert Einstein said, uh, to be able to make a four-year-old child understand it. Now, I don't know if we've fully covered you know, that we can come back to this again, we can bounce on this subject of the dissection, but so the dissection um, objectives are about continuity. It's mm -hmm. about showing relationships. And of course, it's through the fascia. I have a particular view of the fascia. Some people don't agree with me. I believe that bone is fascia. And if you, if you don't believe that bone is fascia, you're missing out on such a, an amazing opportunity to be able to have a conversation with the bone. But the bone is not hard and unyielding. That's when it is, you know, either aging and pathological, but the bone is malleable and should be malleable. Pilates is a wonderful way to ensure the pliability of bone. So we've got a lot of people tonight probably that um, are starting their journey on learning about the body and learning the anatomy and, and moving forward. In the perfect world, going back on your journey, because, you know, uh, taking, not doing a degree, obviously that would be not becoming a physiotherapist. How would you encourage somebody to really progress their journey and learning more and, and getting to a point where they feel more confident about the anatomy and also about fascia, the whole thing. How would you direct people? We've got a lot of time at the moment on, at home. We've got all this time where people can be learning. Is there anything they can do from home that can really start that yeah. journey? So first of all, you know, I have to, as a, as a clinical anatomist, um, I'm working within uh, okay, I work with the National Training Centre, and so we have our own private courses. But then within the university settings, my job is to deliver anatomy to undergraduate uh, medical students, which would include physiotherapists and uh, dentists and uh, medical students. And then we also have postgrads. So we have the surgeons coming back, anaesthetists and others who want to specialise 
um, in anatomy. Now, when I'm teaching those individuals, I teach the medical curriculum. And I would never dare to do anything other than teach the medical curriculum. However, I obviously believe that the medical curriculum is wrong, or it certainly has aspects to it that are wrong. And so the private courses allow me to be able to put forward my hypothesis and to, you know, through dissection to better explain uh, what it is that I believe. Having said that, it is hugely important that people will study classical anatomy, which is based upon levers, Newtonian physics, um, and the work of people like Borelli. And even though I'm saying to you that that is an, an incomplete or in many cases wrong, uh, you need to know it because you'll never be able to really understand and appreciate the anatomy of the 21st century, which is what I promote, um, unless you understand the past and understand where we've come from. Now, um, so what I would say to you is any study, learning anything about the body um, is really worthwhile. And I was thinking about this question, Michael, you know, what would you say to the younger anatomist? I'm not really too sure that I'd want to say anything that would change anything I did, because if I did that, then I would change the journey that I've taken. And with all the good points and the bad points, it's, it's made me who I am. And, you know, I, I kind of like who I am. Um, you know, I think I'm a, a good husband and a good father, and I think I'm a, a decent human being. And I always say that, that time is the great witness. I make lots of mistakes. I can be a complete ass. I can be irritating, you know, well, not really, am <laughs> We're all that way. And, but you know what? At the end of the day, I don't think I'm such a bad individual. And I wouldn't want to change that. I wouldn't want to give myself some advice to avoid something because that's part of the journey that you take. So um, on the internet, and when I look at the internet, at classical anatomy, I very seldom have seen anything that I'd look at and go, oh my God, that's absolute and utter rubbish. In terms of classical anatomy, because remember, I think a lot of it's wrong anyway. So from that viewpoint, it's fine. Um, and you need to understand the classical anatomy in order to be able to then... So for instance, I had a woman who walked out of my class in Canada because I said there were no origins and insertions in the human body. And the woman walked out. She was disgusted with me. She was a physiotherapist and uh, from Ireland, believe it or not. And I was, I was heartbroken. You know, it's like the sheep that got away. I was heartbroken because I didn't get the chance to maybe discuss that with her um, a little bit further because remember that all of these notions and ideas are man-made notions they're man-made ideas we take a we take um i'm going to try to get to the camera so my biceps here and if i take my finger and break my digit and bring it in this direction i can hook it under my tendon and i can pull my tendon up so now i've got a hold of my tendon which is the bicipital tendon and i've got a little bit of lacertus fibrosis there as well and i'm going to pull that up so if I take that tendon, which I can hold between my, my finger and thumb in a pincer grip, and if I follow it down to its insertion, I can take a, a scalpel and I can cut that. And then I, I bring that muscle up and I say, wow, and maybe I'll cut it up here and say, now look, here's the biceps brachii. Biceps, two, two tendons. Brachii means upper portion of upper limb. So once the word any name has brachii, brachialis, brachioradialis. Once it has the word brachii in it, it means it relates in some way to the upper portion of the upper limb. Okay, got that. Now, if I look back at the limb, you'll see that there's a little bit of tendon still there. In fact, there's loads of fashion, but the, the tendon is still there. So I go, okay, 
Now what I'll do is I want to get all of the tendon. Okay, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to take the scalpel and you're going to have to dig into, it's not hard, you dig into the osseous tissue, the bone, because the bone is soft and can be cut with a scalpel. But now when you lift the tendon up, you'll see there's a, a bit of periost on the bone. So where does one begin and where does one end? And we have this description of fibers of the, of the tendon going into the bone via what's called Sharpie's fibers. Now not Sharkies, but Sharpie's fibers, like the Sharpie pen. Um, but all you're getting is a transition. And that's what happens in the body. You get transitions where things go from being very soft to becoming harder. So it's really a spectrum. And at one end of the spectrum, you've bony tissue, this is, this is bone, but that's cartilage. Feel the bottom of your nose, guys. Just do that, look, that's cartilage. Now feel the rim of your ear, the pina. Feel that, that's cartilage. Come maybe, a, a, you know, an inch, so your, your last digit, that's a human inch. And come one inch off your breastbone and do that. That's cartilage. And then you have cartilage, for instance, in the joints, in, let's say, for instance, between the, the femur and the tibia. How many people have actually seen living cartilage how many people have seen what living cartilage looks like and you know the only people who have seen living cartilage really are going to be surgeons you know if you get to see cartilage you usually get to see it in a cadaver because mm. how do you get to see cartilage maybe you're going to use ultrasonography you won't get to see cartilage very well with ultrasonography or with cat scans or pet scans you you'll get to see s some version of it um but you really need to stick you know, an endoscope in there. And even when you stick an endoscope in, you've had to inject saline solution, which changes the dynamics of the joint. So to be a little bit careful about what it is that you're seeing, if you want to, in a few minutes, I can, I can show you cartilage tissue via an operation. But, and it's the consistency of an egg white. I mean, it's, it's completely soft. You can see the, the stainless steel probe indenting it. It's very, very soft. And that's also bone tissue. So bone tissue, has a spectrum of softness to hardness. So where does one thing begin and one thing end? It doesn't, it's just continuous. It's the, it's the perfect Mopius strip or Mopius loop, you know, from, from top to bottom, from front to back and from, from birth to death. So listen, John, there's some interesting questions. I wanted to give you this one first. What is your opinion of static stretching post-exercise, e resistance training where the muscle load is working hard to contract under load? Okay, so hopefully I won't lose you. And I think Michael is recording this. So if anybody wishes to uh, go back and look at it over and over again, feel free, feel free to do so. So basically what happens in the human body, um, and this has actually saved many a driver's life. A person is driving a car and they've been driving for a long time and they're falling asleep and the head starts to fall forward. And eventually what happens is it pops back up again. Have you all witnessed that or, or seen that or heard that. And we also have what's called the tendon knee jerk, which is where you do this and your knee goes forward. And doctors, you know, will test that with a little hammer. And so this is, this is the most uh, basic reflex. Even amoebas, one-celled amoebas, have this particular reflex. And it's called the monosynaptic reflex arc, or the, the um, it, it means a single, a single synapse, ipsilateral uh, reflex arc. And basically what happens is this. When you go... Okay, first of all, by the way, this is a, a difficult one. Uh, one is you should never stretch human connective tissue. You should never, ever, 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 ever stretch it. You're saying that you're stretching it, but you're not really stretching it. 
And this is another problem. The Pilates community and all of the other communities, yoga, we really need to stand up and kind of say, listen, we have a new language. We're not going to use the language that has been given to us in the past because it just doesn't fit, it doesn't work. What you're doing, in fact, is shape changing. Nothing in the human body lengthens right down to the nuclear level or right down if you want to go down to the monomeres, if you want to go down to the actins and the myosins, they all move around each other relative to each other, yet no one component actually shortens. What they do is they shape change. And it, it's, a, it's a kind of a funny thing because we have what's called the sliding filament theory and yet nothing is sliding. And we know that because if you place your hands together like this, compress them, and now do this, what do you feel? You feel heat, and the heat is a consequence of the friction. You wouldn't want to build a human body or a living structure because that's just going to lead to inflammation and it's going to lead to the breakdown of membranes, etc. So that's not a good, so you don't get sliding in the human body. You only get movement relative to each other, which you, I don't even know if gliding is a good term to use there, but we'll, we'll, we'll stick with gliding just for the moment. You can get gliding, but then you need something between them and what you need because there's no spaces in the human body so you get what we call hyaluron and hyaluron for me is really the body's ball bearings so that it's non-compressible and that allows tissues to move uh, along each other or past each other without actually creating friction so let's go back to the stretch then for the moment so what you're doing is your shape changing but believe it or not your body remember i told you there was hierarchy so the human body is it's kind of preset to resist what you would call lengthening. So shape change in the form of lengthening. And in fact, if we didn't have that, we wouldn't be able to move, we wouldn't be able to digest food, we wouldn't be able to urinate, um, we wouldn't be able to do all of those things. So you eat food and what happens to your stomach? Your stomach starts to shape change in the direction of what you might call stretching, it, it enlarges. And that, that's the trigger for your muscles to contract so that you can start to digest food. Your bladder starts to fill, so it's what you might call stretching. It's shape changing in the direction of, of increasing length. And so you have to go, have to do a wee, or perhaps maybe you're, so let me give you an example of it. I, I don't know whether I should use the big one or the small one, I'll use the small one. So here we have a lovely little uh, model. Now this is plastic, so remember it's a model. And you know, you don't have plastic in the body, even though we talk about plasticity, but still, as a model, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really nice opportunity for me to make a certain point to you. So we can take point A here, point B, and let's say point C is somewhere out here. And if I said, if I moved something from point B to point C, would it be reasonable to say that we'd lengthened it? Would that be reasonable to say we'd lengthened it? And so I take it and I bring it all the way out here. And in fact, you know, I, I reach point C. But this is made of plastic modules so nothing on this has either lengthened or shortened but or perhaps you know or i eat some food and then so you can you can see as a model it's a really this is a hoberman sphere if anybody's interested um and in fact even with a hoberman sphere um i've got some this is a that's a really big one look at that that was that's a <laughs> Hoberman sphere. I can throw it up and it doesn't do an awful lot. Can you see that? But if I put a twist into it, whoa, it opens up. So rotation is huge. It's hugely important and we need to make sure that uh, we you know when we're exercising that we don't try to 
stifle rotation, which is unfortunately what we do a lot of times when we go into fitness centers and gymnasiums, we tend to stick ourselves into machines that lock us into, you know, at, at, you know, at best two planes of motion. And we need to really be moving on three planes of motion, which of course is what Pilates is all about. So at the end of the day, the basic message I'm making to you is that when you're going through motion and movement, that's not stretching. Because if you, again, if you stop and think about it, and when I first moved to the States in 1979, this wet behind the ear Irish guy, we had no such thing as restaurants. Well, I didn't know about them. We had fish and chip shops. We had a family called the Fortes here in Dublin. And that was it. You know, maybe some of the very rich people knew about restaurants, but I certainly didn't know about them. And when I arrived in America, the guys in America were talking about barbecues. I'd never heard of a barbecue. What's a barbecue? They said, oh, you know, once the sun comes out. I said, the sun comes out? <laughs> Fantastic. I said, yeah, and then we have a barbecue and we, well, we cook our steaks and we, we like to you get a nice aged steak. And I was thinking, what's an aged steak? I didn't know what an aged steak was. And I was going to become a physiologist. And so I had a friend of mine, Beaters, who owned a restaurant in upstate New York. And um, he started to explain it to me because, what, and of course, um, you know, there's a movie out where somebody says, I see dead people. Well, I see dead people all the time. I'm working with bodies that have been donated to me. And um, what a great privilege. And what happens with these individuals when they die, of course, is what happens to all the muscles on death. Do you know? Muscles go into rigor mortis, which is a rigor contraction. In other words, they, you might call it, shorten, they shrink. And of course, nobody wants, so let's go to the beast now, let's go to animals. Sorry if anybody's a vegetarian, um, but we're talking physiology here. Um, but nobody wants to try to put their knife through a, you know, a, a steak that's stiff and tense. So what they do, in fact, is they literally stretch the muscle. Why? So that they disassociate the actins and myosins, and now there's no contraction. Now, that would be truly stretching. And I'll finish with this point. If you look at the abdomen, the abdomen of any woman who has gone through pregnancy, and for the most part, what will you see on their abdomen? And they even have the right name for it. Stretch marks. Why? Because they have truly stretched the connective tissue and you'll never get it back. Never. You'll never get it back. And then there will be some people who say, oh, well, I don't have stretch marks. You know, deep to the skin, believe me, you have the evidence of having gone through pregnancy. And of course, people get confused with that and say, well, why would, you know, Mother Nature do that? Why would evolution allow us to damage ourselves? That's evolution is not perfect. It really isn't. So just bear in mind that you're actually not stretching when you do what you do. But for those people who truly go out of the way to stretch, many gymnasts do, there will be consequences to pay for. So, for instance, if somebody can lift their leg up like this, it literally means you've dislocated the ligamentum teres. So you've, you've damaged the ligamentum teres and you've dislocated the head of your femur from your acetabulum. That's just it. You've, you've done it. There's no doubt about that. Because, go on. Question for me. I've been told, and I want your opinion on this, that for women who have had caesareans, uh, especially multiple caesareans, the damage to the fascia can limit range of movement in the shoulder. Horrible. We're trying to change the way in which they do cesareans. I'm, I was ready to do a presentation here in Dublin, which will now have to wait until this COVID business is over. Um, but I'm hoping to be able to do a presentation to some of the maternity hospitals here in Dublin uh, for a 
a reasonably new approach. It, it, it is a, still a form of cesarean, but it's a different incision and in a different, slightly different part uh, of the abdomen. And women are up dancing and moving and so on within you know a couple of hours of, uh, of having given birth. So um, I didn't know I was going to talk about that. <laughs> Otherwise, I might have shared some of the, some of the details. But generally speaking, you know, most of the, the typical um, traditional um, cesareans leave people with numbness and, you know, they've no feeling around the abdomen and it leads to all sorts of other uh, pelvic floor problems and so on. And then meshes, please stay away from meshes. Don't, if you have anybody who has a prolapse, please get them to contact me. Do not go in the direction of meshes. They should not be going into any female body, any body whatsoever, but certainly not. You know, please don't be going into meshes. Horrible. There's obviously a lot of passion towards spine surgery as well. I mean, I've got a great friend, a doctor, a surgeon in Italy that doesn't believe that, you know, 90% of sur surgery is, could be avoided through movement. They're quick to, to cause, um, to do the surgery, but it's going to cause more problems. You know, you fix the prolapse, it shifts, the problem shifts up high up the spine and goes up high up the spine there. What's your opinion on that? Well, look, I really do believe that uh, surgeons are amazing people. They're just absolutely brilliant. But at the end of the day, we're trying to put into the human body uh, screws and bolts and nuts, ceramics, stainless steel. And, you know, it, it's what we have, I suppose. Uh, although we are moving, we are moving at a rate into the area of, um, of soft matter uh, physics. And th that's going to herald a new era. Um, so at the end of the day, you know, it is what it is. And some people go and they'll have a knee replaced. And, uh, you know, it's very, very difficult when you speak to somebody and say, well, how, how are you feeling now? And a lot of times they say, yeah, yeah, I'm feeling good. It's much better. And you need to speak to these people at least four years after they've had the operation. Because people psychologically cannot come to terms with the fact that they allowed somebody to take a, a scalpel and to split open the skin, to split open the subcutaneous tissue, to, you know, burn and cauterize the blood vessels to reduce loss of blood, uh, you know, and get in there and pull things apart. And they can't believe that they've done something like that um, and, and not get a benefit. So from a psychological viewpoint, I think they're often quite confused. And uh, when you talk to many spine surgeons, particularly those who are either coming to the end of their careers or who have finished their careers, they have a slightly different um, view when they look back at what they've done. And um, like for instance, one of them said to me, I'd have been better off scratching my patients. <laughs> that's exactly what he said i'd be better i'd have been better off scratching so look it can be very useful a surgery can be i remember working with a guy who had been in kosovo during the war and he'd stood in a landmine and what surgeons had done to be able to save that i mean he had chunks missing from his lower limbs and yet here he was walking around and still being able to move etc so there are some wonders in medical science but having said that um, one of my great friends, Dr. Francis Smith, I don't know if you remember Francis Smith, uh, Michael, but um, Francis is the world's leading authority in upright MRIs. And I can remember saying to Francis, if you had, I, I mean, I picked my scenario carefully. I said, if you've got two, you know, 60 year old twins and you take x-rays or MRIs or whatever you wish to take of these 60 year old twins. And I see Carl Davis there, by the way, has joined us and she's a twin and has an amazing story to tell. But if you, if you take imagery of those two individuals, you may find that they've got, you know, pathology in the vertebral bodies and in the discus tissue. 
uh, if one of them is complaining of pain, you know, through the glutes, down the hamstring, down the leg, um, what would happen basically is a medical practitioner would take an image and then say, oh, well, look, there's the reason that you've got pain because we see a, you know, a, you know, whatever, a bulging disc or they'll see some pathology. But yet that's not necessarily the case because the, the sister or the brother, the twin, may have absolutely similar changes in morphology or you know, wear and tear, and yet they don't have pain. And Francis said to me, he said, so John, what you're saying to me is that I can take a, a photograph of a telephone, but that doesn't tell me that it's ringing. And I said, well, Francis, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And I've used that phrase ever since. Now, of course, it could be that the nucleus pulposus is pressing on, you know, a, a, a nerve, a nerve ganglion or whatever it may be. Yeah, absolutely. But not always. And it's amazing how the body can adapt. So, so a, a lot of times some of the surgeries are not necessarily needed and they actually lead to new additional emerging problems. Okay, so let me ask you this. Going back to the question, stretching, there's another question come up. Is basically, uh, you're, uh, is it doing any damage? If you do like a traditional static stretch, is that damaging anything or is it not effective? We know it's not effective, as you say, but would it cause problems by doing static stretching? So, whether it's hamstring or whether it's upper trapezius. Upper trapezius is always one of these muscles. Here's a fascial structure that has a real relationship, with, but every body part has a relationship with emotion. Perhaps the abdomen, chest and upper thorax you know mind you having said that that's anger anger is there and there isn't it you know there are certain places where you, jesus you know you can really see the anger um less maybe in the lower limb but you can certainly see it in the forearm and in the in the masseteric muscles um upper trapezius is a is a muscle that just gives people so much hassle and that they feel tension and stiffness so what do they want to do to it they want to now, I call that stretching the symptoms because, again, people in the complementary uh, body, work, body work therapy world will often say, oh, well, the medical profession treat the symptoms. Sorry, yeah, they, they treat the symptoms. Well, a lot of us in the, in the movement world are stretching the symptoms. And all it's doing, in fact, now that you know that when you go to lengthen the tissue, what does it do in response? It contracts. So if shortening and contracting and spasm, and by the way, there are some people who don't believe in any of those things, um, I do, but if you've got a, a, spa, a spastic tissue, which is already creating a shortness like this in the in trapezius, attempting to stretch it is simply going to compound the problem. And the one thing you cannot do with the human body is force your agenda on it. And my father was a West of Ireland man. So... Uh, the, the west of Ireland, they weren't as, you know, we used to call the, the Dublin, the big schmoke, the big city, you know what I mean? Oh, you lads up there in the big schmoke, you, you, you know it all. That, it's, it's similar in North America. You've got the, the people down the south and the farms, and then you've got the New Yorkers, you know. It'd be the same kind of a, a kind of approach in the, in, in the mindset. And um, but what, I used to go to the west of Ireland, and I'd go to a press, a cupboard, and uh, I'd go to open it, and it wouldn't open. I'd pull it, it wouldn't open. And then I discovered, of course, one of my uncles or one of my aunts told me that if you pushed it, it would spring open. And so this is the premise of something we use in bodywork therapies, whether you're a neuromuscular therapist, whether you're an osteopath, or a craniosacral therapist, whoever you are, you're all doing the same thing, which is you take a body part 
that has a distortion. And let's say the distortion is there. Can you see that? My, my shoulder went to there. And what you do, in fact, is you exaggerate the distortion. And you hold it there for a certain period of time, and then you take it out, and suddenly it seems to work better. So in other words, rather than going in the opposite direction, you go in the direction of the distortion. And this seems, and if you hold it there for a certain period of time, in, in, uh, that's very simplistic because there could be other, there could be multiple um, things that are influencing this. But as a general rule, it's quite a nice thing to do. So what you do is you exaggerate the distortion as opposed to stretching it and it rectifies itself from a, from a, a vascular and from a, a neural viewpoint, which was one of Dr. Leon Chato's favorite approaches. He loved that. So, ask, uh, yeah. So jumping on, I'm coming from a Pilates point of view because, you know, we come both from the YMCA. You mentioned the YMCA earlier. And actually my first aerobic course was with YMCA, fitness leaders, creators. Oh. Um, and back then I remember we had these manuals where we had movements with big red crosses across them. Right. Contraindicated. So, you know, we came from all that period. We were safe, we were safe, we were safe. Move along to today, and there's a big movement in the Pilates world where we have the classical Pilates and we have the modified Pilates, where, where we're modifying the movements. And coming from a safety aspect, I've always said, oh, we'll, we'll modify and build up and different postures and that. Looking, Joseph Pilates developed his method based on his own body. He was a man who was quite, you know, obsessed, obsessed with his, um, his movement. He studied movement. He, was, he spent his whole life. He came up with a set of movements. And there's a lot of people saying out there in the world right today um, that we should just do those set of movements, a set of movements that should not be changed and you should do them as Joseph Pilates did them. And then there's the other set of uh, saying, well, we should maybe change them and modify. You know, knowing your Pilates as you do, what would you, what's your opinion on this trend in classical Pilates? Okay, so I'm going to say a couple of things that might be a little bit controversial. First of all, Joseph Pilates was, he was a wonderful pioneer he was fantastic. He was not a nice human being. He, no. was a, he was a beer guzzling, cigar smoking womanizer. That is the fact. No, and in fact, my personal belief is, is that it's the women in his life who probably deserve certainly a lot more praise than they get. So Joseph Pilates was fantastic. Yes, he was. It's the same in anatomy. When do we ever hear about the women in anatomy, it's all male, male dominated. Don't get me wrong, I'm not against the male. Males are fantastic, I'm, I'm one myself. You know, we're, we're not a bad old bunch and we love women. We, we love human beings, generally speaking. But, you know, Joseph Pilates was a, was a, a good guy, as many people were, we, we alluded to that at the very beginning. Um, but the facts of the matter are, you cannot just stay with what was done in the past. And I, I gave credit to that, I said that there were many um, you know, philosophies and models and ideas of movement, which we're now beginning to, you know, confirm that that's the way we should move, whether it's the martial arts, looking at the crane or the monkey or the dragon or whatever, but it was always about following nature and following, you know, animals and how they moved. And you don't see a, a horse in a field stopping and stretching a limb. They, they, they will stop to get their head down to, you know, scratch at something. But, you know, horses and cats, generally speaking, they'll, they will go through a, a pandiculation, which is completely different to, to a static stretch. So there are certain movements which I do believe need to be modified because we're, we're now living in, a, in, a, in a, a world where men use moisturizer. Who'd have known? 
for goodness sake. So the facts of the matter are, we're a softer, <laughs> we're a softer, you know, type of the species. And now we do need to modify. I believe we need to modify. And this idea that it's either Joe's way or the highway, that's too strict and too narrow minded. You, you need to be able to, to change. The idea that you can't have music in Pilates. Oh my God. It's like, you know, there, there are no animals in heaven. I don't want to go to a heaven where there's no animals or no music. <laughs> I love music. Music is my life. And I remember we did the class with you, Michael, and you had the, you had the, uh, the bongos and the, you know, it's just magnificent, you know. They were actually drums, not bongos. Yeah. Drums. Okay, there's another question come up. How does the fascia talk to the other tissues? Oh my goodness. Well, this is again why I was saying a little earlier on that there's um, evidence now showing that free nerve endings may not necessarily be free nerve endings because there's been a, a new nerve um, discovered and everything's talking to everything else. So from my perspective, fascia, uh, both embryologically, is everywhere. Fascia is everywhere and it's a different communication system. It works on a different time scale. Because remember I talked about hardness and said that there was a, a spectrum of hardness to softness. And basically, I use spectrums all the time in talking about the human body. So there's various ways in which the body can communicate, depending on the time variable that's required. Um, and so muscles can contract very quickly and have evolved to give us that utility. That's fantastic. Fascia also contracts, but doesn't contract on the same time scale as muscle fibers. And in fact, fascia could take several years to complete a contraction. Uh, so you could be in a car automobile accident, a car accident, and you get out of the car and you think, oh, wow, I'm okay, I'm fine. But in the next three years, your head goes into forward flexion, you go into a rotation and your shoulder. But it takes three years for all of that to, to actually happen. Um, and maybe you don't see it because it's insidious. It, it doesn't happen immediately. Um, so the other thing I'd say to you is there's been an argument for many years to say, you know, we've got nerves that are running through the body, but are they running under the carpet or are they innervating the carpet, uh, fascia being the carpet? Well, um, this, is a big, this is a big discussion because if you wanted to see a nerve in tissue, you'd have to take out a piece of tissue and look, at, look for the nerve and you'll see the nerve going through and you say, okay, well, it's, it's gone out. We've, we've cut out the tissue. Let's say that's the end of the tissue there. My finger represents the nerve. So the, the nerve's going on. So now you'd have to, do, you'd have, you'd have to cut out another piece and take it, oh, there's the nerve. You'd have to cut out another piece and then you'd see a piece and there was no nerve. And you'd say, oh, so it ended there. That's where it's ended. Um, so has it ended in the tissue, innervating the tissue, or is it just simply passing through the tissue? In other words, is the fascia just a conduit? And from the, the, the best assertions that we have right now, it would seem that fascia is replete with nerve endings. It's the richest served connective tissue in the human body. So it's informing everything, but on different time scales. Everything is working on a different time scale. Well, there's a question coming from Dawn, who's with us tonight. She says she works with a fascia in Shiatsu. Separately, how does the body ever recover from a severed nerve? You know, you're talking about cutting it. Does it ever recover from a... a it would depend because many people will remember Superman, Christopher Reeves. If you have not seen the movie Lorenzo's Oil, that's a really cool movie to, to get. I think it's 25 years old now, 27 years old now. Lorenzo's Oil and wait for the very end of the movie. So when the movie's finished, it's not finished. There's a little surprise at the end of it. 
um, all those years ago. So basically we have what we call myelinated uh, nerves and we've unmyelinated nerves. And really what happens basically, I'm trying to be as um, simplistic with this. Um, so my, my finger represents the nerve, but there's a coating on the outside. And this coating basically um, has a particular um, chemical or electromagnetic fingerprint. And basically what happens is if you sever a nerve and if it's a nice clean cut, let's say it was a, a scalp with something nice, nice and clean, then if on the periphery of the body, there's a possibility that these two things have been separated, but they can find each other from an electromagnetic viewpoint, from a chemical viewpoint, they find each other and that the myelin grows faster than the nerve itself. Um, and then the nerve, so it takes months, perhaps, a person might have no feeling, or, and then suddenly they start getting feeling. Um, unfortunately, in the spinal cord, they're unmyelinated. So even if they're very close to each other, they, they'll grow past each other. They won't find each other. So if it's in the spinal cord, and of course, this is what they're, they're hoping to do, is they're hoping to be able to do a bypass. And there's different variations on that theme. You take some stem cells, you, you develop them, you know, in a laboratory, in a petri dish, and then in a laboratory. And then you put them back in and you bypass the damaged cells, the damaged nerves. And we'll see, of course, that's ongoing. That was meant to happen a couple of years back. There was a surgeon who was going to take the head off one body and put it onto the body of another. Did you, I don't know if you guys knew about that. And um, it hasn't happened. Um, it, it was attempted in 1978 with a rhesus monkey. Um, and it was, well, they claim it was successful. Some people say it wasn't, it was just a reflex because the monkey uh, came to and snapped at the surgeon. So they said it was successful, didn't last very long, about 12 hours. Um, but, but, but there are people who are trying to achieve that because believe it or not, it sounds a bit Frankensteinian, but there are individuals who, if there's somebody who's comatose, in other words, they're brain dead and there's no chance of them coming back. And this other person here, you know, is still alive. Um, but you could remove the head and put it onto this good body um, it sounds Frankensteinian, doesn't it? You have some wealthy 97-year-old billionaire who decides I'll have that 21-year-old uh, body over there. Thank you. So um, you, had a choice, you had a choice of whose body you put your head on. Who, who would you go for? It'd be a, a younger, it'd be a younger you, Michael. <laughs> I, mean, I can remember you in the very early days. My God, how skinny could you get? You had your unitard on and then you had a belt which you even pulled tighter. I mean, and yet it, it seemed to all work. It seemed to all fit. Um, well, gone of those days. That's all I'll say is gone of those days. <laughs> me too. Believe you, me. My head, I'm still the same. Uh, but it's just, you know, the body in the mirror doesn't reflect that. There's a question coming from Law. She says, okay, from an instructor personal training point of view, what's your opinion of foam roller and working the fascia with a foam roller? Can you do it? Is it advisable? I've read myself that you can cause quite a bit of damage by over um, re releasing the fascia, shall we say. Okay, so I, again, to put it into perspective, I actually drink a glass of Chardonnay. Alcohol. <laughs> Alcohol is probably seen as being something that's not necessarily good for the body, but my God, is it psychologically good, especially in these times. Um, so a little bit of what's bad for you sometimes is good for you. Foam rolling, as a general rule, I would say to you, the foam roller, has to be a very specific type of foam roller. If you're using a very stiff, hard foam roller, probably not bad. Um, certainly not this fascia blaster thing. Stay away from that. It's absolute. I mean, there's doctors on TV in North America 
supporting that thing. I just can't understand that. I really can't understand it. So foam rolling can be very, very useful, I believe. Um, you know, you could use foam rolling, a kind of a softer foam roll or something on the lines of Sue, what Sue Hitzman uses in the States, you know, and you, you trap a piece of tissue down and then you move, you see? And from superficial to deep, because there are no layers in the human body, but what you have in the human body is you have thick and thin morphologies. Uh, so it's thin here, it's thicker here, then it's thinned out again, then it's a little bit thicker, more, more condensed um, or densified. And so because of that, the tissues all move at different speeds. And so by maybe, you know, using a foam roller and you, you trap a tissue and then you move, then each tissue moves at a slightly different speed. And so if there was adhesions in the, in the tissues, this could help to free up adhesions. Now, you'd have to make sure that you were aware, or if you're dealing with clients, that you would tell the client that they may feel some discomfort or some uh, soreness uh, the next day. Um, especially if you're in the United Kingdom, because we have a particular precedent in the United Kingdom that if you haven't told somebody that something can cause them pain, and if they wake up the next day and go, oh my God, my back is sore, what did that girl do to me? Or what's that? They can actually sue you. Uh, so it's called the Montgomery Principle. It came in in 2015 in a Scottish uh, legal case, um, and it's affected the, the, um, the medical world. So they have to make sure that they explain to people uh, what it is that they're doing and what the contraindications are. So a little bit of soreness, a little bit of what you might call, what used to be called domes, delayed onset muscle soreness, something similar to that. Um, and so foam rolling can be beautiful. But I, do you know what, Michael, I'm in favor of just moving. I, I love anything, as long as, it's, as long as you're not being, as, um, as Rodney used to say in, in Only Fools and Horses, as long as you're not being a plonker. <laughs> I, think, I, I think most people know when they're being a plonker. So just don't do something that's too intense or too, but get out and move and do things. You know, and foam rolling, I think is beautiful. Soft foam roller. Soft foam roller. Sue Hitzman, look up Sue Hitzman. She's magnificent. Another question's come in. Um, do you know anything about when, uh, with abdominal surgery, when the fascia's cut, how it can affect balance post-surgery? Are there any uh, views on that and any remedies for that? Well, again, if I, you know, if we were, if we were doing a presentation, I'd be able to maybe, you know, demonstrate by showing you some nice uh, cadaveric images. And you might remember that I mentioned to you that there is hierarchy in the body. So from an embryological viewpoint, I'd be able to make more sense of that. So absolutely it affects, uh, it can affect balance. Um, but I'd have to put a little bit more meat on that skeleton. And I think that images are very powerful so that people can go, ha ha, now I can see that connection. I can see the, the rationale. So I'm not being funny with you, but you know, to disrupt any aspect of the holistic nature of the human body will have an effect everywhere, not just local. There's both local and global, but it's going to have an effect globally. There's no doubt about that. Okay, next question. Uh, what's your opinion about working with clients with the diastasis recti, recti? So, so what's the question exactly? Any, is there um, any advice from you about working with clients who've got diastasis recti? Well, I mean, there's just, there's one, there's one place to go to and that is, oh God, what's her name? Caroline. Who? Caroline Anthony? No. Well, okay. There's one. You, you've recommended one. I'm not saying no to that. Oh God. I'm, do you know what's happened? Joanne Avison says this to me sometimes that the, the angels come along and they just, they steal the, they steal the word from your mouth. So there's a particular girl who was, uh, she's written for me. Diane Lee? Diane Lee, thank you. I would follow the work of Diane Lee. I think Diane Lee is 
superb. Um, they're, they're, you know, there, there are a few that you know could hold a candle to her. And again, I'm a little bit biased because um, Dr. Shato really held her in high esteem. And so I would certainly point you in the direction of Diane Lee, you know, because that's a shortcut answer because Diane will, Diane's material is there for you to see and she's got lots of papers and yeah, that's a, that's a good record. Thanks, Michael. That's great. Uh, no, it wasn't me. It was somebody else helping on the... the oh, right. Very good. Yeah, Diane Lee. It was Papa. So fast or slow, John, do you like it fast or slow when it comes to movement? both because we move fast and we move slow but uh i think there's a limit to the amount of slow movement that you should do i mean there are times when we you see in both embryology or even if we look at the, the flow of blood to the body the flow of blood to the body um at its fastest pace is at about 120 miles per hour whatever that is in kilometers and when you get down to the capillary level it almost comes to a, a dead stop now, in embryology, we sometimes use the word equiescence. In other words, it's, and it's a beautiful word. It, in other words, it doesn't quite stop, but it almost stops. I think when something stops, that's when you have death. Mm. So we, we always need to have a certain amount of movement. But this utility of stillness, what a beautiful facility we have to have that, to be able to control everything and have stillness. And sometimes because of the pace of life, we need to take time out to be, to be still. But remember when I, when I say you're, you're being still, there still is motion and movement and breathing. But I think that's a beautiful thing to do. Um, but then in, in exercise science and in bodywork therapy, we have a, an expression which is specificity in exercise science. And in bodywork therapy, it's called SAID, S-A-I-D, Specific Adaptations to Impose Demands. And what that tells you basically is, if you want to be good at moving slowly, then move slowly. And if you want to be good at moving at an intermediate speed, well, then move at an intermediate speed. Everything is about specificity. So, you, you, you know, you can't just sit like this and then expect to be good at running or to be good at jumping, or to be good at doing any kind of aspect of Pilates, you have to do it. So yeah. what I would say to you is look to your life, see what's important to you, and then try to maintain and encourage that. But then you need to also avoid being over repetitious, because then you'll get the most common problem we have in manual therapy, um, which is, and I'm sure Carl Davis and others who are there who are manual therapists, Wow, what a blessing to have Carl Davis. I can't believe that joined us this evening. Um, <laughs> I'm always lost for words now. But, um, you know, but, but you have um, um, repetitive strain syndromes. So you, know, you, need to, you need to come up with some plan to try to kind of give those parts of the body a little bit of a rest. There's the biggest problem. Lack of recovery. Mm. Overtraining. Staleness. Not putting back what was lost. That's the secret in life is to do a little bit of everything. Life, life, age, you know, obviously none of us are old, all of us are young um, in our minds, but there's a reality that kicks in. Yeah. And I said obviously the age, there's a difference between 50 and 60, 60, 70, 70 over 80, but the need for recovery, what's your opinion about working hard and fast then as we get older? Surely the, we have to adapt for that recovery being a slower recovery. You know, I get people who, look, I'm, my, big, my big birthday, my next big birthday is 60, the 6-0. And 
you know, I, I'm not 20. That's just the truth of it. But there are people who really feel that they, you know, they want to show somebody that I'm fitter than any 20. Well, yeah, okay, great. But you know what? You have to go down a gear. And if you, you know, maybe there are some who don't. I look at Tom Cruise and I forget the whole Scientology thing and all that business. I love Tom Cruise. I think he's fantastic. I think he's, I watch him in his movies and the stuff that he does. And I just think to myself, oh my God, he's just amazing. But not everybody's Tom Cruise. He was, you know, he was born with all the, you know, I don't know what happened in his past life, but he was rewarded and, you know, he's got it all. And I've got what I've got and I'm just working with what I have. And I, I try to recognize my strengths and weaknesses and, and I push myself a little bit, but I also give myself plenty of time for recovery and a glass of Chardonnay. <laughs> All right, those are the comment here. Going back to Cal, uh, she's giving you a comment. But John, is it not true that the nerves are a kind of specialized aspect of fascia or one organism, just specialized cells? Yeah, well, that's what you get. You, you get, I mean, there, there's the wisdom now within the question. And believe you me, Carl doesn't need to ask me that question. She already knows the answer. All she's doing is being very nice to me to set me up with the question. And the facts of the matter are, my, my hypothesis is that really what you have is you have the fabric of the human body, which is the fascia. And then what we do is we deposit specialized cells into that fascia. So you could not have a kidney or a liver or a spleen or a pancreas without having the fabric, which is the fascia. So fascia is absolutely everywhere. So of course, nerve cells are replete with fascia, but with specialization embedded within it. That's the way I would look at it. So obviously being Pilates instructors, as many of us are, we're thrust in front of situations all the time. Um, is there any, the question is coming in, is there any way you would guide people to look at you know, post-surgery, um, as far as uh, recommendations, you know, who would you go to for somebody that's had post-surgery? Because obviously that person that's had whatever surgery it is, is going to be very different. Is a way you would guide the instructor to find out information about whatever the surgery has been? What's your... Uh, well, of course, we're going to have people now who are joining us from all corners of the, of the earth, this little tiny blue planet of ours, um, which is becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. And from that viewpoint, it's difficult for me. There are many people out there who are excellent manual therapists and they have wonderful um, uh, maturity and experience with their hands. Uh, it doesn't just belong to one particular stripe. And um, I think the older you get, the more you realize that less is more. So I would look for those people that are not gung-ho. I would look for those people who are softer and more genteel in terms of their approach. And uh, sometimes even laying a hand on a body part simply brings attention to the body part, which allows that internal wisdom of the body to go, oh, yes, I remember you. I haven't spoken to you in a long while. Now, that sounds a little esoteric, and I appreciate that. But in the context of a conversation um, tonight, we've only got a limited amount of time, so you'll forgive me. I, again, that's another skeleton I'd put some meat on. But um, I, I think you're the idea would be to try to build up people within your community who you trust in terms of their knowledge and skills um, write to surgeons uh, let them know a little bit about who you are. Don't send them pages and pages and pages of information. Uh, just, you know, a one page syn synopsis of who you are and what you do. If you, if you know that there are surgeons specializing in a certain area and maybe your particular therapy has, um, has had an article in one of your journals, 
you know, from somebody who does surgery, then send them a copy of that article um, and, and let, them know the, let them know what you do and say you'd love to meet for a coffee. Because believe me when I tell you, a surgeon has, you know, has offered a, a surgical intervention for carpal tunnel syndrome. Patient comes back and says, oh, my wrist is killing me. And now this wrist is starting to hurt me as well. So now the surgeon performs surgery on this uh, wrist. Now the patient comes back and says, oh my God, both my wrists are killing me. So this is what happens. They do a second surgery because this is called failed surgery. And so they do a second surgery and the patient comes back and says, oh my God, doctor, my wrists and my hands and my forearm, they're killing me. Do you think the surgeon wants to have this person continually coming back to them? The surgeon would love even if it's for all the wrong reasons, but the surgeon would love to have somebody that they can refer this person to um, that might be able to do, you know, offer some type of therapeutic intervention. Um, now it would be better if you could get to that person and say to them, before you have your surgery, would you give me three to five sessions? And let's just see if we can make, a, uh, make a, some kind of um, therapeutic intervention. I'm going to have to sneak this one in real quick, Michael. The way in which the, I remember I told you guys there's hierarchy in the human body. Mm -hmm. If you have pain in this wrist and it goes untreated, in other words, if you do not get to the bottom of it, you will automatically have pain in this wrist. There's nothing wrong with this wrist. You're going to have pain in this wrist. This is to do with what we call decusations and the way in which the nervous system is set up. So the facts of the matter are, the amount of neural activity traveling to this wrist will simply spill over into the same segmental level and go to the opposite side. So there are people who are having operations on body parts that are painful and there's no reason to have the operation. So, you know, some, some genteel soft tissue intervention and movement, you know, and some movement can, uh, can often resolve the problem. And if within three to five sessions, we don't see a, a change, well then, when we're not saying to the person don't have the operation we're not we're never saying that but we're saying could you would you at least give me three to five sessions and let's just see if we can make a change a significant change and if not i mean keep keep going to your operation or you could can you know postpone it for a couple of months but oftentimes people are rushing headlong into having operations when in fact there could be another solution and i'm not talking about cancers by the way somebody has a cancerous growth the chances are that has to be that tumor has to be taken out of there and has to be removed. I'm not talking about that sort of thing at all. We're talking about something like repetitive strain syndromes and carpal tunnels and epicondylitis and whatever else. Can I ask you your opinion on, on this? It's obviously from coming from Plotter's aspect. You know, the Plotter's world was really changed when the the the, the neutral when the Richardson, Hodgson, and Hyde research came out back in well, it was redone in 2002, which was looking at the transverse abdominus and the, the importance of the transverse abdominus with lumbar stability. And that's really when we started having the world of neutral pelvis and neutral spine and, the, and the working the transverse. Um, and it's kind of been the big thing with Pilates for a long time. Again, it was kind of validating what we were doing. Suddenly we had this research that was saying, okay, what you're doing here is holding a static position. What's your opinion about that, about neutral pelvis? Because I get asked all the time, uh, you know, in fact, I was asked today, I, we're doing a bridging course at the moment online and, and people were asking me about uh, they were taught to teach in imprints and not keeping the neutral. How would you look from a clinical anatomist? How would you look at working in neutral when it is appropriate? And what is the benefit of that? Okay, hold that thought for literally five seconds. Hang on, watch this. <laughs> Has it gone? <laughs> it's gone to the toilet. Oh, oh, the light. I just think that was getting very dark, Michael. So I th think uh, 
you know, there'd be no harm in them. Okay, so now we have a, we'll unveil, ooh, we'll unveil this one. Oh, let's unveil this model, you know. Now, this is not exactly what you're, you're asking about, but I mean, it's, it's, it's related. So here we have a, a pelvis, you see? Of course, the, the muscles that you're specifically re relating to would be the, the musculature that are here. So we've got the rectus abdominis, external, internal, transversus abdominis. And then from a posterior viewpoint, we've all the, the uh, paraspinal musculature and so on. Um, you have in total 29 muscles that attach to the pelvis, if you want to talk in terms of individual muscles. So 29 muscles. So, so which one, which one is more important than the other? You know, is there any sense in that? And what you're also talking about is what we call MAPs, muscle activation patterns. And so they would notice that certain muscles uh, perhaps should uh, switch on and operate in a particular sequence. Um, and I agree with that. I, I think that that makes sense. I think we just need to be careful that we, again, comes back to this notion of, um, you know, less is more. If I get everybody to sit up somewhat in their chair, not stiff, but just to sit up so that you're not collapsed. When you're collapsed, it's impossible to get a breath because your sternum has gone posteriorly. How can I, how, how can I expand my chest, you know, when I'm sitting in that position? So for, if I'm here at least, now my chest, has the op my chest has the opportunity to move in every direction. But if you're here, and let's say I ask you now to pull your belly button in and now breathe, you won't be able to breathe. So this idea of contracting, what needs to happen is you need to have the skills and knowledge to be able to assess whether somebody's muscle activ activation patterns are not as they should be. And then you need to be able to offer I would say one-to-one -one intervention. Um, and this is where they're consciously having to think about what it is that they're doing. And there are several um, exercises for doing that. But then you reach a point where it has to become a subconscious thing. In other words, I don't think they can be, that they need to be thinking about this while they're doing a class because all they're going to do is in fact cause a dampening effect. And that dampening effect will interfere with the exchange of forces from the lower limbs to the upper limbs. Um, and my personal take on that is that you generate the forces to move your upper limbs from your lower limbs. That's where they come from, because these guys are actually quite small in the scheme of things. These are all about dexterity. These are all about fine tuning. These guys are all about gross forces, but those forces are exchanged in the body. And that's why when you have a dampening effect in what you call the core, and when you have a dampening effect so the forces are not being transferred, then these guys are left to hang out on their own and they just can't do what you're asking them to do. And they end up getting injured. They end up, they end up screaming. They end up screaming for help. In other words, it's the squeaky wheel. It's not the true source of the problem, but it's, it's a voice saying to you, please stop doing what you're doing because I can't cope. So I, I, I believe that you know, there is, a, there is a, a discussion around core that's important, but it's how it takes place and the language you use and the explanations and it's a little complex. Does that help you think, Michael, or have I made, a, have I made it even more complex? I don't I know. I agree with you. The, I mean, one-to-one -one is always, you know, the, we, we beg people, we do beg people to do one-to-one. -one. Uh, it's sometimes hard, you know, when obviously when we've got group exercise and group classes that we can't reach uh, that assessment 
level that you know what we're trying to do in that group environment is trying apply something which is going to be useful and so it's really as i say you know we've been focusing this a long time we've been for the last since 20 years we've been trying to teach people to switch on the core to train them to use the core in movement you know either from the pelvic floor or from the ta you know to switch on that core and just is that and your opinion of that teaching people to activate the core and breathe as you said as we as, that's what we, we call blood is breath is lateral here not through the abdominals how effective do you think it is in the functional scheme it's, of it's a difficult question to ask uh, to answer because you have to ask yourself the question if a particular synergy of muscles is not activating as they should people sometimes refer to that as being weak i refer to that as being inhibited so the question you then have to ask yourself is why are these tissues being inhibited and they're being inhibited because there's a hierarchy in the human body so you need to then understand you know the hierarchy so that you can understand how the in inhibition is taking place and then you remove it's like my hand is inhibiting my head from moving forward so if i say that my you know that this is weak but i'm going to make it stronger so what do i do i increase the intensity against that's all that's doing is irritating and compounding what i need to do is i need to take away the inhibition now i can move without the problem and in fact what i don't need to do is start strengthening i simply need to just do something simple you know and this is the problem in many bodywork therapies is that they focus on strength when a muscle is weak you don't focus on strength you focus on what you might refer to as a neuromuscular efficiency a fascial efficiency um, and then you can begin to at, a, at an, a later stage start focusing on strength but the secret is to investigate this word um, inhibition and to understand inhibition and then as I say to remove the inhibition and then ask for movement gentle soft movement and then you can build from there so we do we prefer active assessments we prefer we like to look at the body moving to tell us the story um, obviously there's the clinical assessment where you get stand there and get measured uh, what do, how do you assess a body what's your process i i i, I do movement I, i've all manner of assessments if somebody is coming to me for instance they've been a an, an automobile accident i get them to sit in a chair and assume the position they were in at the time of the insult that that teaches me so much and I place my hands on their bodies while they're doing that. Uh, some people may not be able to remember the moment. They can remember the moments before. That's hugely important as well. So, you know, everything offers you some little piece of information, but um, oftentimes it might just be one little piece of the jigsaw and then you're lost thinking, well, what about the rest of the jigsaw? You know, work with what they give you and, you know, go with your intuitive um, feel based upon your life experiences, based upon the knowledge that you have. And here's the funny thing. Sometimes it's the smallest interventions. The body has the ability to heal. The fact that somebody cares enough to be able to, to touch you and just to suggest something to you is enough to spark healing. Um, you know, so, and, and by the way, I, I'm an editor for the, the Journal of Body Work and Movement Therapy. I've never, which is multidisciplinary, we have everything, Feldenkrais, Pilates, chiropractic, osteopathy, bone, neuromuscular therapy, physiotherapy, physical therapy. We've got all of them in there. I've never seen the paper saying, oh, and it didn't work. <laughs> so it seems to me that everything works. Yeah. But if it's caring, compassionate, you know, it doesn't always have to be loving, but you know, a little bit of love does, doesn't do any harm. 
And uh, the fact that somebody just cares enough to, and even I call the, these biofeedback uh, techniques where you, you place your hand on a body tissue and say, can you feel my, my, my digits, my fingers there? Yeah. Could you breathe into that for me? And you see people thinking all sorts of breathe into that, you know, and suddenly your fingers move. Like they've got the breath going to here where it wasn't going there before. And you're suddenly starting to make connections where you'd lost connections. And that just might be enough to spark healing. We all have the ability to heal, but sometimes we're putting out so many fires that we're just spending energy doing this, this, and this. And if somebody can come along and help us take that fire away and that fire away and that, then the body's, thanks for doing that for me. That's fantastic. Now I can spend energy on this business over here because this has been going on a long time and I haven't been able to get to it. I just haven't had the energy. Tell us so, about Tell us about John Sharkey. I mean, apart from my morning bar class, which you joined this morning, which is fantastic. Thank you for doing that. How, what do you do? Tell me about your program for your own body. Well, so there's a couple of things that I do. I do bouldering or rock climbing because that's what I believe we as humans primarily did. Now we, okay, the, 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 to the best um, uh, science that we have, it seems that we have come from East Africa uh, Homo sapiens have been around about 150,000 to at maximum 250,000 years. That's all we've been around. I mean, the Homo genesis has been around about 2 million years, but Homo sapiens about 250,000 max. And we came out of East Africa. And so, you know, uh, we, we went around the world and found ourselves some living close to the coast, some on, um, you know, mainlands. And we, you know, we did what we had to do, but we might have to climb the side of a little cliff to get to a, an apple tree or an orange grove. And so that's really what dictated the shape and morphology and size of muscle tissues. Or we climbed over rocks on the beach to get out to a, a tasty morsel, a little oyster. And so I love the idea of rock climbing, of bouldering. And, uh, and believe it or not, I also do, you know, the heavy ropes. I do rope training. Right. Um, and I do a little bit of everything else. I mean, I love Pilates. I've been doing Pilates for what, 30, whatever it is, years. Um, I do a little bit of Feldenkrais. So I mix and mingle. I, of course, I have, a, I have a background in the martial arts in what was called Kung Fu or White Dragon Kung Fu, which is beautiful because it's very flowing. And then I also did Shotokan, which is very stiff and very, you know, but and I love to mix these things. I mean, I don't do the martial arts anymore, by the way. That's a, a life gone by. The aerobic world, <laughs> I went through all of that and, you know, did the whole, you know, business. You know, we, we did all that together, Michael. And, uh, you were much better at it than I was, but um, so I keep myself busy. Walking is the so as a family we do uh, walk every day, all of us. Um, a little bit of everything. I just you know nothing too extreme. No, so on the extreme side, what's your opinion with um, what we're going through with obviously the popularity of uh, CrossFit and all the extreme sports like that? Yeah, it's great. Youngsters love the sting of sweat in their eyeballs <laughs> when you're young. You probably need a little bit of that. So good luck to you. You'll, you'll learn. You'll, <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter what I say. My father used to give me advice. <laughs> now I'm becoming like my father. You know what I mean? I'm kind of, oh my God, I've become a... No bad thing, incidentally. But um, that's just the truth. We can give advice to people and they're not going to necessarily listen. They listen to some things. That's great. Uh, but they have to have their own experiences and they have to make their own mistakes. And, you know, they'll go through this 30-minute 26 minute 24 minute workout high intensity you know and and good luck to them good luck if that makes you happy because the risk is 
you'll be knocked down by a bus next week or God knows we could be hit by a pandemic. So um, my advice to you is enjoy a glass of Chardonnay while you can. Well, I think um, Routini is my favorite, you know, the Merlot and the Cabernet. <laughs> Um, and this is, is water that I'm drinking. If any, no, it's not. It's a <laughs> in case anybody's wondering. Well, that's fantastic. So, listen, you're keeping yourself sane and busy during this uh, during this period. Yeah, I mean, you know, thank goodness for Zoom. Thank goodness has yeah. proven to us to be the best platform. We've looked at several, um, but what amazes me and uh, and it really is heartening is that, you know, all of these guys who are listening to you and I this evening or participating with us, your hearts are all in the right place. You're absolutely beautiful people. As all the graduates who have come to NTC or anybody I've ever met, their hearts are always in the right people. Very seldom have I met people that were chasing the dollar, you know, chasing the euro. That is not what we're about. We were never, of course, we want to pay our bills. We want to keep the wolf off the table. Uh, but that was never what motivated any of us. And I love the fact that you play such an important role in your community. And we will get back to normality. The, the, there, there are some issues, there are some problems insofar as people don't truly understand um, what this COVID-19 really is. And um, it's attacking your fascia, it's attacking the fascial system. And, uh, and, and so th there are some issues there. I've written to the Irish government and I've, I've asked them to uh, consider allowing me um, to treat somebody who has been uh, diagnosed with COVID. We'll see how they respond to this. Uh, and I'm not saying that it's going to necessarily fix the problem, but I, but I have a funny feeling that it'll at least alleviate many of the symptoms, many of the issues, which might allow that internal healing to occur. Um, because it's not just the lungs that this uh, particular virus is uh, attacking or affecting, put it that way, um, because fascia is everywhere. And so I think what's happening as well is that the ventilators are useful in the early stages, but in the later stages, pushing oxygen into the lungs is actually creating almost as, as much damage as it is, you know, it's, 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 it's as beneficial as it is bad. And I think that we need to have some qualified manual therapists uh, offering interventions for these people. That's just not happening at the moment, but we'll see. I've, I've written and I've had responses and we'll see what happens. So, um, That'd be nice to, to, to see. So I know it means you're putting yourself on the front line, but somebody has to, so many people are out there uh, doing that. You're putting their own lives at risk. Isn't that wonderful about humans? You know, we're not such a bad old species at the end of the day, you know, we're not. We like heroes. I think uh, Captain Tom has certainly filled all of our hearts with um, uh, amazing hope. <laughs> yeah. that we're not a bad old crowd. I mean, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, we all understand right and wrong. Um, you know, I don't need somebody to tell me that if I do something bad, I'm going to go to hell or I'm going to go to... I don't need any of that. I'm just going to do it because I love other human beings. Um, I don't want to just go to a movie and watch it on my own. I love to have somebody to watch it with me. So that's what life is about. It's about sharing, about feeling part of a community. And that, I think, is what's going to happen out of this, by the way. We're going to come out of this with more people having a greater respect for community. At least that's my, my dream. That's what I hope will happen, certainly for my kids. Well, I know there's a, there's a question coming in which I can probably answer for you because um, I know it's the same with me. They're asking you if you could be, any plans on teaching in the here over here in, the, uh, in England 
um, or in the UK uh, anytime soon Have you got, for the rest of the year? Well, there's a number of organizations. The Sports Massage Association is a wonderful association, and I was one of the founders. They do fantastic work. The LSCP do amazing work as well. Uh, Fozzie is their main guy over there. And, um, and I'm, I'm over to the UK a lot. I'm actually doing some stuff, I think, with Joanne Avison. We were supposed to, of course, be in Paris, I think, in a couple of weeks' time. And I mean, everything has, has obviously been cancelled or postponed. I was doing a, a course in Poland, which has now been postponed to later in the year, uh, or may, it might even be next year. We'll see what happens. Um, but I'm, I'm to and fro from the UK. I do a lot, of, a lot of dissection courses, you see, during the year, some which I can't, obviously, uh, offer to the... Uh, to the movement therapy world because it's, it's for surgeons. So there's only so many weekends, Michael, isn't there in a, in a year, but I mean, the UK is only a stone's throw away. So yeah, I'm, I'm and um, if invite me, I mean, uh, contact me and let me know. And we definitely will. We're definitely, well, you're welcome to come here to this, our uh, campus in Devon, as we're calling yes, it. It looks beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I'm also doing some stuff with eHealth. Uh, if you look up eHealth or embodied health um, and myself and Joanne Avison have a, a very nice little short course coming up on telehealth, which is basically going to help you in terms of how do you set up, like for instance, teaching Pilates uh, from home and uh, so that you can bring some income uh, while we're isolating and so on. Well, I know the first week we were here and I was doing lots of um, classes and personal trainings, a lot of personal trainings. I don't think I've ever seen so many bedrooms in my whole life in one week. Um, I mean, I saw everyone's bedroom as I was doing that, but there was a challenge because suddenly people were distant and not connected. And of course, in a group class, I was muting everybody in under one-to-one. -one. You know, I was listening to noises in the background. So it is very challenging to enter into this new way of teaching. Yeah. Uh, I think it's also a time which is, you know, bringing information such as this evening and other times where we can get information out to have, you know, I know your time is so valuable and to have you for, for this evening, for this event. Was well, I love it. I love to, I love, you know, these opportunities. It's not, you see, it's not always about selling course. We've, as I said, we've got to make a living as well. Yeah, no. look, look at all you guys that you're sitting there. You've got headphones on some of your ears sweating, listening to, to me, uh, waffling on. Uh, thanks so much for giving your time. It's fantastic. And if you've, if you've learned a couple of little things from this, I think that's fantastic. And, uh, Great to spend some time with Michael. I want to share one thing with you. I'm always talking about, um, you know, I mentioned it earlier about movement and movement. I didn't say movement takes place on three planes, but I just want to share that. So this is the heart. Uh, um, and so the heart sits in, the heart sits in your chest, actually this way. So the heart sits in your chest this way, you see. And so I was following the work of a, a surgeon. He was a cardiac surgeon by the name of Torrent Wasp. And I like to mention Tor Torrent. He was, um, he was trying to find the true anatomy of the heart. And uh, so, so did uh, people like uh, um, Leonardo da Vinci. And they knew that it was spiraled, but they just really couldn't, they couldn't uh, find how it was spiraled or how to dissect it out. And I actually did the first uh, human heart dissection of this spiral. So basically, this is it. So there's your heart, but here's the anatomy of the heart. Look, isn't that pretty cool? Fantastic. So what it does, in fact, embryologically, it spirals into that shape. And so your heart doesn't pump blood around your body, which is this, that's what we used to think it did. The heart actually is a, hel is a helical organ and it, it sucks blood around your body. It creates a vortex. So anatomy is not done and dusted. We have not had the last word or the only word on anatomy 
So stay tuned. It's really an exciting. Um, this is yet to come. Somebody asked you, there was a question. Can you recommend a book about embryological anatomy? Is can I recommend what? A book about embryological anatomy. Yeah, I can recommend Joanne Avison's book, which uh, has the, the title of Yoga on the front of it. Um, and, you know, it, it speaks uh, about yoga, but don't let that fool you. It's one of the nicest, um, if that's not too soft a word, one of the nicest books that, I, that I've read. It's really, really uh, an excellent book. So uh, yoga, fascia, anatomy, and motion. If I'm, I probably always get that wrong, but um, she'll kill me later. But uh, anyway, Joanne Avison, and take a look at that book. That's a wonderful book. You'll, you'll really enjoy that. Well, it's been great having a conversation with you this evening. It's been uh, my honor, you know, I've known you for a long time and we, we never have anything short, uh, <laughs> we're never short of words when we're yeah. together. Uh, but, and, and you know, again, maybe as I say, with all this downtime, at least maybe this would not have happened for all of us, you know, getting to have this conversation. So I think we have to turn and think of, you know, the positive things. Um, Saying that we've got you know some more things next week. We, we want to bring you guys while we're here. We wanted to, when it was announced. I don't know how long have you got the lockdown? The, well, whatever the second. I'm, I'm six. This is my sixth week now. Right. So and we're on a different time scale to the UK. I mean, things are happening in in on different time scales in different parts of the world. But we're now into the sixth week, and really, there doesn't look like there's going to be. I mean, what they tried to do, government. You can understand governments. They try to talk about you know the next two weeks or the next month or the next, but. This is, going to, this is going to continue on. They've started um, trying to recruit people for human trials of a vaccine. And um, you know, let's keep our fingers crossed in that regard. And let's hope that a vaccine is actually what's required. I believe that uh, we have issues centering around uh, fascial issues and carbon monoxide um, levels. And I think they need to be addressed but that's going to be addressed through manual therapy predominantly. And we let's just see what happens. Well, listen, um, we will see what happens. That's to be sure. Uh, listen, John, uh, great. Thank you. Uh, love to your family. And I hope, don't forget, I've got a uh, bar again on Friday morning. So I hope to see you with your tights on yes, again. I'll be there. Watching shorts, I see when the leg came up. I thought he's wearing shorts. Yes. Uh, I hope to see you in, um, in class on Friday. Morning. clothes on from here up. Yeah. <laughs> There we go. Bare feet. No, no, no. The shorts. The shorts there. The shorts. Just before we go, is there any other questions you want to ask while we have John here? I know there's lots of thank yous coming in, which is great. Uh, but you've got one last moment to, to ask us a big question. Apart, from I'd love to know how Dawn pronounces her surname. Dawn. I've never seen that. O E I. That's a wonderful surname. Where is Dawn from? Dawn. Let's see if we can find Dawn. Let's see if we can find and Dawn can tell us how she says her name. And I see Roger wants Chardonnay as well. Is, why is everyone doing? Um, uh, hi, John. Is uh, how you? Uh, how do you how do you pronounce your surname, Dawn? It's pronounced like we. It's actually we. a Dutch Indonesian name. So uh, I would have hazarded a guess at we, but yeah, there you go. You're the first we that I've ever met. <laughs> but not the first. Nice to hear you tonight. And there's and then there's why. So you got we and wise. It's it's a uh, Dominica. Is it Dominica? How do you pronounce your surname? Was Y correct? No, my surname is quite long, Wojciechowska. So I just get the shortened version. Oh, the short version. <laughs> ever gonna pronounce that? <laughs> and where are you from? Where are you joined? I'm from Poland, original, but I live in Uri, Ireland. Oh really? Yeah. 
right, you're just up the road. You're only an hour's yeah. drive up the road. Very good. Exactly. Wow, okay. That's great. Monica from the uh, Mark from Scotland. Hi, Mark. <laughs> In a very darkened room with your glasses on. It, you're looking very sinister with that dark background. And that's that Mark Flanagan. Mark Flanagan, one of our aerobic, you know. There's another guy. He's another pioneer and he sits in the background, you know, and just doesn't really kind of take the spotlight on him. But my God, there's another pioneer who deserves a huge amount of credit. He's just quiet and always thinking. That's what it is. But no, guys, listen, thank you, Veronica from Los Angeles and Nula from the south of France. We've had quite a collection. Wow, it's fantastic. Oh, I see Roger Davis there from SMA. Go, man, Roger. There's another pioneer in the industry. Another one of these guys, by the way, who works in the background tirelessly and probably doesn't get the type of praise that he deserves. Because if we didn't have people like Roger Davis, you know, doing so much for, for therapists and for, I mean, we'd be lost without someone like, and Roger just doesn't look for praise. He just does it. He's been doing it for years. So, you know. Yeah. John, the way. Thanks, John. Great <laughs> Oh, it's great, Roger. Great to see you. Thanks. Guys, um, we'll be sending you a feedback for this evening. You know, as I say, we've got other ones planned. Not as obviously, John is the star of everything, uh, but we will be doing um, some more ones next week. I hope you can join us. Uh, it's a great time to have these experts to join us and share their knowledge with us and learn from that. So I wish you all stay safe. Have a, a good evening and, and the rest of the day for uh, Veronica in Los Angeles. Um, and um, and Thanks for joining. And John, again, thank you very much. Well, thanks, Michael and to Malcolm. You guys stay safe. Keep doing what you're doing. We love your classes in the morning. So, uh, <laughs> we look forward. And really, it's just, it's, it's, it, I think it's important to have a routine. And so you're part of our routine. You're part of our daily routine. I was telling you earlier, since I've been doing bar Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I feel like I'm back in the club teaching. My derriere has definitely gone up three or four inches. <laughs> I'm just fearful when we come out of lockdown, it's just, and I stop teaching bar, it's just going to drop again. So it's like going up, 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 you know, all that. Oh, I was just eating breakfast and Fidelma was just going on about you and how brilliant, you know, I said, Fidelma, come on. I said, seriously, you know, <laughs> anyway, you're fantastic, Michael. Keep it up. You're doing great. Mutual admiration society going on here. Listen, guys, we're signing out. Take care and we'll see you again. Bye. Thank you for joining us, guys. <laughs>